I'm Catherine Amirfar. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the, the Headlines. Headlines. Coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. I'm Cal Diala, co-host of the podcast, and I'm really pleased to have as our guest on today's episode, uh, Rebecca Hamilton. Rebecca is a professor of law at American University in Washington, D.C., uh, though you will uh, discover by her accent, if you don't know, Beck, that she has spent some time uh, down under. And we are going to talk about the ongoing issues surrounding what has become known as AUKUS, uh, or the relationship between Australia, the UK, uh, and the US, and of course, kind of lying behind that, France, China, and many other countries in the uh, Asia-Pacific, or or what's now the preferred nomenclature of the US government, the Indo-Pacific. And so I thought uh, Rebecca would be a wonderful person to talk about some of these issues, put them in context, and we're going we're gonna to dive right in. So back, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Cal. So, um, okay. So I thought maybe what we could do is just start with some of the background for listeners. I think probably most people are familiar that there was a bit of a, a kind of a, a incident involving uh, technology and nuclear submarines and a deal with France. And uh, But embedded in that, or rather that's embedded in a larger question of relationships amongst uh, these, these key countries. And then also some really interesting questions around the NPT, proliferation generally. So there's so much to cover, but maybe we could just start with kind of what happened uh, and why it happened. Right. So this all, this sort of big, big um, media fest that we've had around uh, nuclear submarines in in the last two weeks stems from an announcement by Australia, the UK and the US of this tripartite agreement that they are planning to integrate military capabilities across naval, cyber, AI, quantum computing, okay? So, So this big announcement and the first sort of concrete manifestation of this effort is going to be the purchase by Australia of eight nuclear-powered submarines. Um, And as best as we can tell from the information that's been made available thus far, um, they'll be using highly enriched uranium. Um, And as you signal to, this this generated attention for a number of reasons that are, I think, going to be interesting for ASIL listeners um, on the international law front in terms of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, But there are some geopolitical implications as well that I think would be good to get into. And it's probably worth noting that this is only the second time that the US has shared this nuclear technology with another state. Uh, The only other country that it shared it with was with the UK, pursuant to a mutual defence agreement back in in 1958. So this is a big deal uh, and in some quarters seen as a real coup for, for Australia. Yeah, it certainly is a real coup. And I think it's interesting just to note, I mean, this is sort of obvious, but that there are really only, uh, depends on exactly how you count, but maybe nine, maybe 10 states with the uh, kind of capacity to use nuclear weapons and, you know, many others who have other forms of nuclear power and so forth. But for a technology that really dates back to the 1940s, it's quite impressive 
and maybe surprising that it hasn't spread more throughout. And I'm speaking broadly of kind of uh, nuclear weapons technology and, and many other aspects of it, but that we've done a pretty good job of, of keeping a lid on uh, proliferation broadly understood. Uh, and, you know, the U.S., of course, has been a key player in that. And so this is a pretty big step. Um, so, so I guess one question I have for you, well, before we get into the, the NPT side of things, let's talk a little bit about France and its role. So <laughs> France had a deal, uh, the deal, they seem very unhappy that the deal was, was broken, um, but even that characterization may not be correct. So maybe you could fill us in a bit on that. Sure. So the background to this is a 2016 deal between uh, the Australians and, and the French through a, a publicly owned French defence contractor called the Naval Group, um, where Australia was going to be acquiring 12 diesel-powered submarines. Um, now, Australia has already sunk something in the order of $2.4 into that contract. Um, but it's been clear for anyone who's been paying just a tiniest bit of attention that that deal's been in quite some trouble for a time. Um, there have been delays and extraordinary cost overruns. I think it started off as, as a sort of $50 billion contract in, in Australian dollars um, and has skyrocketed to an estimated $90 billion. Um, so it's certainly not true that the French had no warning that this deal was uh, in trouble. However, it appears that uh, the French heard about this AUKUS announcement uh, pretty much the same time as the rest of the world, um, which obviously was a, a huge fail on the diplomatic front by Australia um, and, and very much, I think, an, an own goal. and you know, there's some problems that that it has caused for the US-French relationship as well. Um, from what we've heard so far, it seems that uh, the US had sort of trusted Australian assurances that it was going to uh, have let the French know what was happening. Um, and certainly according to the French, that is not what came to pass. And so we're seeing uh, the diplomatic fallout on that right now. Um, and some spill-on effects in Australia, um, EU free trade talks uh, that were due to be happening later this month have been suspended. Um, and, you know, there's a, a lot of high rhetoric about how Australia is now a, an untrustworthy partner. And can you speculate at all as to why it was, let's say, bungled in this way diplomatically? What was, I mean, was that really just a misstep or was there something more? Of course, uh, some listeners may know in, in, in we're recording this on October 12th, I believe. Uh, there's been recent news reports about some uh, spies perhaps involved uh, passing technology onto an unnamed ally, perhaps could be France. It's really totally unclear, but I'm just wondering if this is really a mistake or more of a deliberate message of some kind. So I really don't know because it, it feels like such an own goal that you would like to say there's something else going on behind the scenes. Um, however, I would sort of, I, I guess the context that might be worth considering here is that um, it's possible that they just really believe that this would not come uh, as a surprise to the French given all of the conversation that has been happening around the trouble that this deal has been in. Um, 
So I think we're going to have to wait to see more reporting come come out on on that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, this plays into a much longer standing issue about France and its, you know, France being in and out of NATO at various times, France wanting to uh, really be uh, different uh, and distinct from what many uh, on the other side saw as kind of an Anglosphere, um, which is an idea dating back really to the 1940s. Um, or even earlier, that there would be some kind of linkage among the English-speaking nations to create, uh, you know, an alliance system or a, a kind of concert or something like that. And obviously, the relationship with the UK has always been a very strong one for the US, but Australia, I believe, has an even stronger um, military relationship. And I, you probably know this better than I do, but I think Australians claim to have fought in virtually every American conflict or more than any other country, or they have some claim of that nature. Right. And above even the UK as a kind of ally. So um, not surprising that these three English speaking uh, nations would team up in this way, but I'm sure annoying to the French on many, many levels. Um, but as you say, we'll learn more in time. So let's, let's turn to some of the proliferation issues. So, so you, um, uh, I know in our prior discussions, you connected this right away to the NPT, and let's talk a little bit about the NPT and, and, and what are the connections? So I think the challenge for, you know, the person in the street um, to get their head around with the NPT is, first of all, that it doesn't just ban uh, the use of, of nuclear materials and technology. It, in fact, Article 4 of the treaty provides the inalienable right of states uh, to develop you know, research and, and use of nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. So the deal behind the treaty is to say that states can be using nuclear material, but we're going to set up a system of safeguards to ensure that um, the material only gets used for permitted purposes, in other words, peaceful activities, and doesn't get siphoned off into um, the production of, of nuclear weapons. Now, that safeguards process involves the IAEA um, doing independent verification uh, of what states are doing, and that works really well when it comes to civilian use. Where you run into a problem is that there's a subset of activities within the military sphere that are permitted under the MPT system, um, but the IAEA itself cannot get in and use its regular safeguards process to monitor the activity that's happening in that space. So there's something called a, a Section 14 um, exception, and, and if any listeners want to Google it, it's, it's Information Circular 153, um, subsequent to, to the NPT, and it provides for exactly this scenario where a non-nuclear weapon state wants to withdraw material from the safeguard system in order to use it for a permitted military purpose. Um, and then when that purpose is complete, then, then the safeguard system resumes. Now, what's interesting is that the, in, in the entire history of the MPT, we haven't yet had a state use this Section 14 option for a nuclear-powered submarine. So this is the first time that it's going to happen. Um, and... The question that I'm going to be watching is how well 
um, are the AUKUS partners and the IAEA itself going to set up this process? Not because anyone, I think, is, is particularly concerned that Australia will um, withdraw materials from the safeguards process and then siphon them off into to creating nuclear weapons. But what is happening under AUKUS is setting a precedent for future countries that might also wish to utilise Section 14. And in particular, we've seen noises um, to this effect already, and I will not be at all surprised if in the coming months we see Iran um, say, well, Australia is doing this um, and we want to be able to do this as well. So the question for AUKUS and for the IAEA is what conditions are you going to put around Australia's use of nuclear materials in this way um, that is not only looking towards what Australia will do, but is looking to the countries that come next, who we perhaps may have less trust um, that they will uphold their obligations under the NPT. Um, the entire regime works on a deterrence basis. And so that's why I think it's really important um, that strong conditions are set up um, so that we're not signalling to other states that, that this is a loophole that can be exploited for the production of, of nuclear weapons. That's really very helpful. And, and just to provide a little more context, I think probably most listeners are familiar with the basic idea of non-proliferation and the NPT. The NPT has been around now over 50 years. Um, and, you know, it does have this basic bargain embedded in it of the nuclear weapon states sharing this technology uh, in, in peaceful ways um, with others. Um, but of course, drawing a distinction between those that have weapons and those that don't. And, and that's been subject to a lot of pressure over the years. Though again, surprisingly less pressure than maybe one would have thought in, in 1970 when it came into force. But nonetheless, the bargain um, maybe, you know, hasn't really been upheld. Uh, and doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to many uh, who look at it. Why are some states anointed this way and others not? So, yeah, I do agree that this is uh, significant or, or I'm not an expert in this, but it, it certainly strikes me as, as a change. So um, that may, may be meaningful. And we can't ignore that this is happening in a context of great power competition uh, globally, but especially uh, in Asia and Australia is sort of smack in the middle of that. So, um, so maybe we could pivot to that a little bit and talk about what what's sort of driving Australia's broader, this is really a foreign policy issue, but what's driving Australia's broader interest in this deal? Um, you know, you gave us some reasons before about why maybe the French uh, contract originally wasn't so great and the technology wasn't so great, um, but there's more than just wanting a better submarine. So uh, how do you see things back? Yeah, there certainly is. And I think, you know, what's been a little bit lost in the coverage um, in the past couple of weeks is, is the focus has been all on the submarines, um, but actually the agreement is, is much more significant um, than that when it comes to um, sort of sharing of, of a whole range of, of technologies. Um, so a little bit of context um, in, in recent times, really post-COVID, uh, the Australian government was pretty forward-leaning on pushing for 
an investigation into the origins of the coronavirus, um, which, of course, got up the heckles of, of the Chinese. Um, and so the, the relationship started to um, deteriorate um, even, even more than it had um, pre-COVID. And the manifestation of this that we have seen is through an escalating, effectively, trade war, right? So, so China has been um, slapping huge tariffs on Australian exports. Um, China is hugely important to the Australian export industry. A third of Australian exports go to China. Um, but there have been these, these tariffs put on Australian beef and wine and coal. Um, so already you've seen... Um, some difficulties in that core trade relationship. What we've also been seeing in, in the past sort of 18 months is increased anti-Chinese rhetoric within Australia um, and sort of the, the current Prime Minister, um, Scott Morrison, using the sort of bully pulpit really for, for anti-Chinese rhetoric and the threat of China, okay? So that narrative has been playing out domestically. Um, and so from a, a, a sort of domestic politics perspective, um, I think it, it probably feels good for uh, the Prime Minister to be able to come out and say, look, we've got uh, this amazing deal with, with the US and um, we are with the US on this and this is going to help protect us against this threat of China. Now, there's another whole strand of um, domestic politics in Australia um, that has long been pushing for a different view of Australia's role in the Indo-Pacific um, and one that recognises Australia's identity as, as an island in the Asia-Pacific rather than pinning its future to a sort of post-colonial Anglo-Saxon identity. Um, and so we are seeing that play out in, in the Australian newspapers right now um, as to you know, which, which side of that spectrum Australian foreign, foreign policy should be um, and whether there's a way to carve out a middle ground that recognises the country's identity as part of the Asia-Pacific um, but is still realistic about the fact that if there ever was real military trouble in the area, um, of course its, its future is going to be tied to the U.S., yeah, it's interesting to think about how, I mean, Australia is in a very difficult situation being geographically sort of proximate. You know, I don't know whether we can call Australia Asia, but it's certainly in the Pacific and, and a lot closer to Asia than the United States is. And yet, you know, having these longstanding political, cultural, linguistic ties to the West and, uh, as you pointed out, facing this kind of internal struggle for a long time over what kind of society uh, is it and should it be. Um, something that we, we we similarly face here, but but in a different way in Australia. I'm curious: has Australia taken positions um, with regard to other issues around the U.S.-China struggle, conflict, competition? Um, let's say with regard to the South China Sea, with regard to the defense of Taiwan, um, anything else you can you can think of that align it more or less with the United States, uh, or otherwise sort of put it firmly in the Western camp? Yeah. So, you know, I think the the reality is and has for the past seven decades at least um, been that 
if you have to put Australia in a basket, it's in the US basket, right? Um, and I think as much as there have been efforts to, um, it, you know, the, there's a constant anxiety about has Australia ceded its sovereignty effectively in, in the foreign policy space to the US? Do, does Australia just follow blindly whatever the US tells it to do? Um, and <laughs> there was a... There was a um, very, uh, what's the word? Um, let's say he was fairly incensed. The, the former, the former Prime Minister Paul Keating wrote, wrote an op-ed on this deal recently, um, where he came out and said exactly that: "This is this is Australia ceding its sovereignty to the US, um, and we'll just be expected to fall in line with with um, whatever the US does in the region, um, including if it escalates um, in in this great power competition with China, um, and including if it needs to come to the military defence of." Taiwan. Um, but I think maybe a, a more um, measured response to this is to say, well, that was probably always the reality, um, right? And, and this just makes that reality more visible. Um, and the task now, I think, is going to be on the Australian diplomats to continue to immerse themselves in the geographic region they're in, continue to sustain relationships um, with partners in the Indo-Pacific um, so that it doesn't look like this is just um, entirely a, a US-Australia um, domain that, that they care about. Um, but, but it's a fraught issue domestically. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, Australia's, as we talked about a moment ago, you know, long been a strong military ally of the US, part of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing arrangement. Um, things that, of course, France, uh, that particular thing is something France is not a part of. Um, and the connections to the two countries, I spent some time in Australia myself. Uh, and if you go to Australia, yeah, I think it's pretty obvious to see why there would be a lot of common ground. Uh, the two societies are pretty similar in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, politically, economically, there's many, many similarities. Uh, the other part is, of course, China is forcing, increasingly forcing countries, and so to the US, forcing countries to sort of pick a side. Um, and I think that must have been a tough uh, decision within the Australian government, how strongly to pick a side, but I suppose um, it was sort of preordained um, which side they were going to pick. So in any event, we will obviously have many more opportunities to, uh, to pick apart this relationship and see what it means. Um, do you think, just as a sort of final question back, do you think that the relationship between Australia and France is kind of irreparably damaged, or is this something that uh, can be fixed and no. a strong relationship going forward? Yeah, I, I think they'll patch this up over time. It's certainly awkward. It's been badly handled, um, but I think over the long term, um, it is it is possible to to piece that back together. Great. Well, Beck, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and uh, we hope to have you on again. My pleasure. Thanks, Cal.